Well, hello to everyone. Glad to have you. We're uh, starting a Matthew study this afternoon from Matthew chapter 8. Uh, with any luck, we'll get to chapters 9 and 10. So if you're able to tag along with us, that would be great. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you are online with us right now, then I would love for you to uh, send a little note or a little, hey, Bill, how you doing or something so that I can see that I've actually got uh, some people out there listening. Of course, uh, if there's nobody out there listening, I'm fine with that too, because I'll post it on my uh, on my Facebook page. We'll post it on our West Irwin Church of Christ page and our live streaming page as well. And uh, ultimately, we'll post it in our uh, on our church website, uh, West Irwin, uh, our West Irwin org, uh, actually West Irwin com website. And uh, and so uh, uh, that'll be uh, that'll be up there for folks if they want to look at it on our archive. Some of the previous lessons are on there as well. Waving at you too, Debbie. Great to see you, uh, Lenny. Nice to see you guys are here, Lenny and Joe, and uh, my buddy, my brother uh, Brian. Great to see you, Brian Brown. Uh, glad you were able to able to take part in this. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Matthew, uh, started out on the Matthew study last, uh, uh, actually in, in September, August and September on our Wednesday night study and uh, went through a, a lot of time, spent a lot of time in the wonderful Sermon on the Mount, which we covered uh, last uh, week. And, uh, and so uh, when everything went crazy and we couldn't meet uh, anymore, I uh, thought, well, I may just go ahead and try this. And so that's what we've been doing. Hopefully you've been able to do that. Hey, it's my friends, Aaron and Sarah Wright. You gotta be kidding. Great to see you guys are here. Love y'all, love your family, miss y'all so much. Uh, nice to keep in touch with folks via Facebook and, and see uh, 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 people's daughters like Aaron and Sarah just growing right up in front of our eyes and, and uh, so many others. Uh, great friends, um, able to keep in touch with my wonderful uh, South Fork Church family in North Carolina and of course, Lackland Terrace in San Antonio and um, uh, Woodland West in Arlington, where we still have our daughter, Amanda, and would love for you to uh, remember Amanda and Paul in your prayers. They're uh, facing all the same stuff that everybody else is facing, in addition to some health issues that Amanda's had, having had uh, uh, this Chiari malformation thing that involved uh, brain surgery, actually, in February. And uh, Paul is finishing up a, a wonderful program in radiation, radiology, technology, and um, so proud of him. But he's got a tough couple weeks. Amanda is waiting to hear results on uh, MRIs from yesterday. And Isaac, of course, is homeschooling now like everyone else is. So their lives are, are especially crazy. We uh, appreciate your love and prayers going uh, out for them. Um, so let's get on to it. I mean, Matthew chapter 8 is where we are. We finished the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you can always look at those lessons if you miss some on our westerwin.com uh, page and then go uh, to our social media and resources uh, tab and click on um, live streaming page and then go down below the big blue box and there's uh, archives. So if you're having trouble sleeping at night, there's all kinds of sermons and lessons and devotional messages from Bill on there. And uh, believe me, it works. It, it's, it's just amazing. Don't listen in the car unless you are especially awake or have had a lot of coffee or something like that. I uh, did that in the last two, uh, last two lessons uh, that we showed uh, last Tuesday and Thursday. 
So uh, uh, Jerry and Beverly, glad to see y'all are here and some others that are joining us and will along the way. Uh, appreciate everybody uh, taking part in this and, uh, and appreciate you spreading the word about it. Letting other folks know that if they want to do a little bit of Bible study from the book of Matthew, we're doing this on Tuesdays and Thursdays on my Facebook page, uh, on uh, uh, my personal Facebook page uh, at 4 p.m. Central Daylight Time. Um, and so uh, and so we finish up Sermon on the Mount and the people are impressed as we are some of the uh, most incredible uh, statements ever, ever recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, very challenging statements. And as I said before, uh, as challenging as all of that is, there's nothing in there that Jesus would say to indicate that he doesn't expect us to try to live this way. Uh, thankfully, because of his uh, wonderful sacrifice for us, we know that uh, when we fall short, that uh, if we continue to trust in him and continue to seek to uh, be obedient to him, that uh, that he'll hang in there with us. And, um, and so that's a great blessing. But when it's all said and done at the end of Matthew uh, seven, the people are, are struck by the teaching that they've heard uh, because uh, Jesus spoke uh, with authority and not like their religious leaders. Um, you know, I, I just, it just amazes me uh, the power that uh, must have been in Jesus' words and the firmness uh, in, his, in his look and, uh, and, and in his eyes. I can, I can only uh, imagine what it must have been like to have been able to, to listen to him. And yet there were many that it didn't faze them. They, they kept right on their merry way and, uh, and their own selfish desires. And uh, we, we struggle with the same kind of things. It's no different today. Uh, we have to uh, do what Jesus will tell us to do in a few chapters still ahead uh, when he tells us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and follow him. If we're going to be his disciples. So that starts with knowing what he wants and knowing what um, uh, that word is that he's sharing. And so that gets us to chapter eight. So I want us to We'll get as far as we can in Matthew 8, 9, and 10 today, and hopefully by the end of our session on Thursday, uh, we'll be able to uh, uh, be um, uh, well down the road uh, and uh, uh, looking at being uh, perhaps uh, finishing up in chapter 12, which is an interesting chapter as well. So Matthew 8, this section of Matthew, there's a, a lot about Jesus' miracles, a lot about his, uh, the amazing things that he did. Um, and so we'll just start reading and I'll chat a little bit as we go and feel free to comment uh, in there if you want. Um, and uh, always you're, uh, feel free to send me a direct message via Facebook if you have a specific question that you want to ask or something you want to follow up on. I uh, would love to interact with you about that in that format uh, as well. I try to respond to the, the, the uh, Facebook messages that, sh that uh, are just on the wall as we're as we're doing this and after it's over. Um, and if you have something special you wanna talk about, I'm, I'm game to hear. You can text me or you can uh, send me a Facebook message or an email message, uh, BillAllen at westerwin.org. And Irwin is with an E, E-R-W-I-N. Uh, that's the uh, email address, BillAllen at westerwin.org. Okay, Matthew 8, verse one. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, 
but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony uh, to them. Um, leprosy, you know, we're in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, we're in the midst of the coronavirus, uh, the novel coronavirus, the, the 2019 version that is continuing on through 2020. Um, but um, this man had the epidemic that was the pandemic of their day. Um, the skin disease of leprosy and Moses, of course, did talk a lot about that in the, in the law. And as you know, uh, people were shunned and uh, they were, they had to separate themselves. They, they, they had to uh, socially distance themselves uh, to such an extent that they would, they would possibly have to move and to be somewhere else. Uh, according to the law of Moses, uh, before a person uh, came close to someone, while they were still socially distant, if they were a leper, they would have to hold their uh, hand over their mouth, kind of like we do today with the mask, and let people know, unclean, unclean, so that they could keep their distance and not be infected uh, as well. And it was, um, uh, you know, it was just a, a horrible, horrible thing for them, physically, emotionally, and socially. Uh, to have that. And so this man comes to Jesus and he says, uh, he, he, has a, he has a great faith. You know, it doesn't seem, uh, based on the little that Matthew records, it doesn't seem that the man had any doubt that Jesus could do this. Uh, but he knew that uh, it wasn't just Jesus' ability, but it was his, his willingness and his will. What a great statement that is, that we know the Father can do anything, I believe my understanding of the sovereignty of God is that he can make anything happen or he can keep anything from happening. But it depends on what his will is. Uh, and his will may be uh, that we, uh, we accept his presence through the storm rather than uh, his power taking the storm away. Either way, he's going to be with us. And we, we understand that. Um, but this man comes and he gets that. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I know you can, uh, if it's your will. And of course, the great news, the greatest news that he could ever hear, Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. And he is. And then Jesus tells him, you know, go back and get your Bible, do what Moses tells us to do in the law, make sure that everybody in the community knows uh, that the priest looks at you and he pronounces that you are clean and that you can rejoin uh, yourself into the community and into your normal life. What a great, uh, a great, great thing. Again, we're seeing a little bit of that played out before our very eyes in our own 21st century culture as we um, see people that are having to struggle with this horrible uh, coronavirus and, uh, and, and how it's affected us as uh, communities and as uh, a nation and other nations as well. And so uh, we, we, passages like this mean maybe something a little bit more to us now. And we understand what a devastating thing that is and what a great blessing it is that Jesus would heal him. Uh, but as great as this man's faith was, there's, there's someone that we're about to read about that, that seems to have even more faith uh, and, and someone who is not even a part of the people of God, which is incredible in itself. Um, so continuing in Matthew 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. A centurion is a Roman soldier, a Roman officer. Uh, to get the name from the fact that they typically commanded 100 soldiers, 100 troops. Um, and, and he comes to Jesus uh, in Capernaum in that uh, northern province of Galilee, which became kind of Jesus' headquarters for this part of his ministry. 
And he says, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Is that what you want? The centurion replied in verse eight, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. You see, he was a military man. I get that. My dad was a military man. He was a career Air Force man. Um, and I was raised in San Antonio and at Lackland Terrace Church of Christ in high school and for several years after Joyce and I were married. Um, and so I'm very familiar with that, that kind of thing. I'm very familiar with someone who says, hey, look, I, I know what it means to, to give and obey orders. I, I get that. I'm in charge of a lot of people myself. And when I give them an order, they do it. Um, and so what he's saying is, I, I know that you're, you're the officer in charge. And I know that you don't have to come and do it. You can just say the word and uh, your orders will be carried out. Uh, it's an incredible statement of faith from a man uh, who is a pagan and from a military uh, background. And so Jesus, when he hears this in verse 10, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. You know, it doesn't ha always happen based on someone's faith. It does in these two incidences, but it doesn't always happen that way. And, and we know that. We see um, the man who was uh, uh, brought to Jesus by his friends, and they, they uh, tore through the roof to lower him on a mat. I'm sure that man had faith as well, but we see the faith of his friends there, perhaps in a very special way. Um, in John 9, there's that incredible story of a man who was born blind, and, um, and he is healed. Uh, by Jesus, but not because of his faith. Later on, when he's questioned about who did this, he said, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And we find a couple of examples of that. But in these cases, they're very familiar with Jesus. And this, this, this centurion is amazing because of uh, uh, several different things. One of them is his great understanding of Jesus' power and authority. You give an order, it's going to be carried out. I get that and you have the authority to order this to happen. And, uh, and sure enough, he does. You don't even have to come to my house. Uh, you can just say the word and it'll be done. Um, amazing, amazing faith. But the other thing is he is not a, a child of the kingdom. And Jesus makes a special point of that. And he does that on a few different occasions in the gospels uh, as he reaches outside of the Jews and, uh, and, and appreciates uh, and affirms the faith of someone who is not a part of the chosen nation. And, uh, and so it's, it's interesting to me that Jesus would do that. Um, and then it's interesting to me that when the Gentiles were brought into the church in Acts chapter 10, everybody seemed to be a little bit surprised and taken aback by it. And yet uh, the Old Testament prophets talk about that. We mentioned the passage last time of the light to the Gentiles, uh, um, Jesus talked about that, and, and uh, there, there's just so much to indicate that this was going to happen, but we understand, you know, they were, 
creatures of their time and place. They were children of Abraham. They had known nothing other than being the chosen people for 2000 years since Abraham lived in about 2000 BC. So, uh, you know, we, we have to give them uh, some room here. Uh, and yet when Peter is sent to Cornelius's home and, and Cornelius and his family receive the spirit in an extraordinary way, the way the apostles did in Acts 2, and are baptized into Christ and are welcomed into the church, uh, even though there was a lot of adjusting that took place. And I, I agree with those who say a lot of the things that are going on in the New Testament and the tension and conflict in the church is because of the, that, that racial difference and religious difference and societal difference, cultural difference between Jew and non-Jew. We get that. And so when Jesus uh, affirms this man, uh, this Roman soldier, and, and, and reminds his people, and he does this a few times in the Gospels, that, hey, you know, some of the chosen people are going to be left out and others are going to be brought in uh, because God looks at the heart and he's going to affirm their obedience from the heart. Um, we see that in this story at the beginning of, of Matthew uh, chapter 8. And so we continue on with the miracles of Jesus in verse 14 of Matthew 8. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Quoting from that incredible 53rd chapter of um, Isaiah. Um, and, and so Jesus goes uh, to Peter's house and his mother-in-law is sick. Now, Peter has a mother-in-law. That means he must have had what? And if you said wife, you are correct. Um, I, I don't know uh, that anyone would say that Peter wasn't ever married, or maybe they might say he wasn't married at this time. Um, but we know that Peter was married, and there's nothing in Scripture, in my humble opinion, I-M-H-O, um, that calls on ministers or church leaders to not get married. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, is very clear about saying um, you know, if, if you're married, then, um, then you have a responsibility uh, to your spouse. And so uh, he, he says that. He says, you know, if, you're, if you can be celibate and faithful and pure and remain single, then all the better, because that gives you much more time and uh, much more opportunity to serve others and to serve the church. But if, if that's not your calling, then it's okay. Get married. Uh, have a wife if you're a man. Have a uh, have a husband if you're a woman, and and be faithful. Be a faithful wife. Be a faithful husband, and serve the Lord in that capacity. Uh, but there's never any indication in Scripture, as far as I can tell, uh, that says if you're going to be a church leader, if you're going to be in ministry, that you can't have a wife. Uh, Paul affirms exactly the opposite of that uh, in First Corinthians seven and in First Corinthians nine, and he says, you know, I. I gave that up voluntarily. Paul himself was single. Um, but Peter, apparently not so. And so when Jesus comes to the house and his mother-in-law is sick, Jesus heals her. And, um, and, and when he does, uh, she begins to wait on them in, in much the same way that Lydia, that wonderful Christian woman, Lydia, 
uh, from Philippi, uh, the first, perhaps the first uh, European convert to Christianity. Um, in Acts chapter 16, after, after Paul and Silas and, and Timothy uh, baptize her and her family, uh, she says, look, you, you're staying with me. I, you're, you're, I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. And it may very well be that that woman became the, the, one of the central supporters of Jesus. He affirms in the book of Philippians that they were partners in ministry. They, uh, that fellowship, that word koinonia, they had a partnership in ministry because of their financial support for him. And that began with Lydia, uh, with her conversion. Uh, in the same way, Peter's mother-in-law here, when, when she is healed of Jesus, you, what you do is you, you serve. You, you do what you can do to express your gratitude, not because you have to, but because of a heart of gratitude. And certainly Peter's mother-in-law uh, had that. Um, and then we go to verse 18. And um, um, again, this this warning from Jesus, look, if you're going to be my disciple, that's great, but just understand that there's a cost. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law, a scribe, came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Um, Luke chapter 9 gives us another picture of this. And we read those words and we think, wow, Jesus was kind of heartless to those guys. Um, but again, Jesus is overstating and he's, he's calling on people to know that uh, to follow him means to put him first. Uh, and just as he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 verse 33, to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added in. Um, but there's a cost. Uh, there's a cost. Again, later on, he will say, uh, deny self, take up your cross and follow me. Um, and so, you know, Jesus was uh, emphasizing to them, look, if you're, if you're thinking that you're going to follow me because of what's in it for you, then you, that, that's not the right approach. Uh, you are called uh, to be uh, faithful uh, to me. And that means that you may have to give up some things. If you're gonna put me first, if you're not gonna put me first, then don't bother. Um, it's an incredible challenging uh, statement. And then more of Jesus' power, but not by healing, but in a different way. Uh, verse 23 of Matthew 8, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm caught up, came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping, isn't that amazing? I can tell you that if Bill were on that boat, I wouldn't be sleeping. And this isn't the nice boats that we see on TV or that some people have, or maybe you've been on. No, 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 no. This is the first century, remember? And yet they're out on the lake and um, it's a storm and Jesus is asleep. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going uh, to drown. That great old song, Master of the Tempest is raging. That's the song. This is the passage uh, where that's taken from. And then verse 26, Jesus replied, oh, you of little faith, you little faiths, um, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Pretty amazing. 
pretty amazing. They are impressed. I mean, they're scared to death and they wake him up as if he can do something. Maybe he can, maybe he can't. Um, and Jesus calms the storm, calms the waves, calms the storm. Uh, and Matthew, uh, uh, later on in Matthew, I think in chapter 14, we're going to get to read that, that cool story of, of Jesus walking to them on the lake. And not just Jesus walking on the water, but Peter himself, for a few steps anyway, walking on the water. And it's a great, great story. Um, here, Jesus, again, all these signs are done with a purpose. They're done to uh, help the disciples come to believe, come to faith. And to demonstrate that Jesus has authority over everything, uh, over the diseases, over the demons, even over natural circumstances, the winds and the waves. And his question is piercing for us today. Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? I think God understands that our fear is a human thing. I think he understands that our questions and our doubts are sometimes because of our humanity giving in to the fear. Um, but Jesus comes to us during those times and he says, why are, why are you doubting? Um, don't doubt. Uh, I, I'll give you what you need uh, to believe. And in this case, it was, it was healing, uh, not someone's disease, not someone's body, but, but healing a stormy uh, uh, sea. Uh, and Jesus does that. And again, they ask, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this indeed? Um, the son of God is what he is. And then this story that starts, Matthew starts in chapter 8, verse 28, that we also read about in Mark 5. And, and I like Mark's version. Uh, there are some similarities. There are some differences. We've talked about that. Uh, this seems to be the same story, even though Mark only mentions one man and uh, mentions the name of the demons, Legion, because there's a whole bunch of them. And in this case, there are two. And, uh, but it seems very similar, and it's likely that there may very well have been two, and Mark just talks about the one. Um, or it's a different incident entirely, even though there's a lot of similarities. Um, again, I don't, I don't think the, the credibility of Scripture is threatened at all. Uh, anytime you have two different accounts of something, there's going to be some things that one person includes that the other leaves out. That's not a big deal to me. It doesn't mean the scripture isn't inspired. It just means that um, when Mark told the story and Luke told the story and Matthew told the story that, you know, they had a, they had a purpose behind it. And we've talked about that uh, already. Um, so this great story beginning in Matthew 8, verse 28, when Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that is indicated by this um, is um, the difference in the men uh, that no one could uh, take control over. And yet 
through Jesus' work and through his healing power and his authority to send, take those demons out of them, um, they're healed. And the, the people have a hard time with it. And they may be a little upset because a large herd of pigs in that day and time was huge. I mean, huge and probably very costly. So somebody lost a lot of money on this deal, uh, possibly, unless they were just wild pigs. But I think the thing that especially uh, affected the people is the, the power that Jesus had. This, this man, these men uh, that before just tried to hurt themselves and everybody else lived in the cemetery, uh, no control whatsoever. And yet when the people come back and they come and they hear the report and they go and see here, they are just sitting there normal, clothed. It's too much for them. And, and they don't ask Jesus to forgive their sins. They don't ask Jesus to heal their lives. They ask him to leave. Um, you're, you're too much for us. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't get that. I mean, I understand that uh, the love and power of Jesus must have been really intimidating for some. But at the same time, it's difficult to imagine why uh, they wouldn't say, can you tell us more about the power that you're demonstrating to us? Um, just an amazing story. Again, read the story in, Mac, in Mark chapter 5 especially uh, as well. Okay, that brings us to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 9. Normally in a situation like this, if we were in class together, I'd say anybody have any questions or comments, but we're just going to roll right on. If you want to put a question or comment down on the uh, on the comments, that would be fine, and, uh, uh, and folks can see it, and I can react to it later. Um, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Uh, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Uh, when Jesus uh, saw their faith, uh, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are uh, forgiven. Again, likely happening in Capernaum, that seems to be his home base. Um, and so the men brought the paralyzed man lying on a mat, and Jesus sees their faith, says to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not what they brought him for. They didn't bring him to have his sins um, forgiven. They brought him to be healed. But again, Jesus is doing this very much on purpose and very deliberately. And, and gets exactly the reaction that he knew he would get from the religious leaders. Why? Because to forgive, to say someone your sins are forgiven puts you in the place of God. And one of two things is true. Either you're committing blasphemy or you are God. And so when Jesus is ultimately convicted and uh, the guilt is pronounced and the religious leaders uh, finally decide they have a case, it's this one. It's not the things that people made up about him or the things that the different witnesses couldn't get together on. But it's Jesus uh, affirming that, yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, you will see me at the right hand of the Father. Yes, I will come in the power and authority of, of deity. And that's when the religious leaders tear their clothes and, and uh, throw their fits, and they say, yeah, this is blasphemy. Um, but in Jesus' case, it wasn't because it was true. And so they bring the man to Jesus, the paralyzed man, and Jesus tells him, pronounces first, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law, verse 3, said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? 
which is an interesting question, isn't it? They're both easy to say, but there's only one of those two statements that's easy to prove. I mean, you can tell somebody their sins are forgiven and who knows if they are or not until we get to the final judgment. But if you tell a paralyzed man, get up and walk because I've healed you, well, that one's pretty easily proven. Verse 6, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Again, that's what Jesus wanted. He didn't just come to help people out in their physical lives here. He did that. But he did that with a purpose, and that was so that people would know that he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He does have the authority to uh, command demons to leave, to heal people who are sick, um, to uh, quiet the storms, to forgive sins. I want you to know, verse 6, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Uh, Luke is going to tell a story of Jesus uh, raising a, a, a boy from the dead who was the only child of his widowed mother. And what they say there is surely God has come to help his people. And it's a very similar statement here. And the people are overjoyed. The religious leaders, not so much, but the people certainly are. Why? Because they see that God has come to help his people. They see that uh, that Jesus is in their presence, uh, the presence um, of God. Um, well, uh, lots of folks that have uh, joined us, lots of folks that are commenting, uh, and it's great to see uh, my sister here, an old friend, my, my friend Becky that I grew up with in San Antonio days, old preacher buddy Jim Hackney, how are you, my friend? Uh, Eric and Cindy, love y'all so much. My old buddy Randy LaFosse that I played Little League Baseball with. Um, it's just a, a, a great... Uh, a great crowd um, uh, that's there and lots of others that I won't take some time to uh, to say hello to. But I'm glad y'all noticed the shirt, one of our favorite places in all of the country, uh, Pigeon Forge, uh, just a, a really nice place. Uh, lots of great memories uh, at that place. Well, we're in Matthew 9 and we're about to get to Matthew's firsthand version of his own calling, which I think is really special. Um, we can read about it in Mark and Luke, but and they're all inspired. I, I get that. But when Matthew tells it, it just means something to me because for Matthew, it's autobiographical. For Matthew, as he's writing these words, can you imagine what he was thinking uh, as a few decades later, he was writing about this very uh, incident that happened to him? Um, pretty special. Okay, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And we've talked about Matthew being also called uh, Levi. And when Mark and Luke record this, uh, they use uh, Levi in Mark 2 and, and Luke 5. Levi, a very uh, Jewish name, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, Matthew, maybe Jesus gave him that name. Um, maybe somebody else did, but a more uh, Greek uh, name. Uh, and um, did Jesus change it? Well, maybe, you know, he changed Peter's name. Um, Abraham had his name changed. Sarah had her name changed. Saul went to Paul. Uh, we get that. Uh, but 
uh, for Matthew, he records it as Matthew all the way through. Um, and then Mark and Luke, when they later on list apostles, they will, they will use Matthew after his calling. As Jesus went on from there, verse 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, I, I have a really good friend uh, who uh, is retired as an IRS agent. And he is a great man, a wonderful servant of the church, uh, a man who was such a great mentor uh, to some of our young boys uh, um, in Arlington. And uh, I love, love him so much and admire him so much. But I can tell you, people, um, people don't feel any better about uh, tax agents in the first century just than they do now. Uh, and Matthew was one of those. And, and typically, unlike today, uh, Matthew and other tax collectors would skim off the top and they would, they would not be honest in their dealings and in their work. And so they were outcasts. They, they were sellouts uh, to the authorities, but they were also uh, looked upon as liars and thieves. And Matthew is called to be one of the 12 apostles. Follow me, Jesus says. I'm sure that that surprised the heck out of all of the other apostles who had been told that very same thing already. Really, Lord, you don't get what this is? Oh, he got it exactly. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, verse 10, you see, not only did he call him, he said, I'm going to go home with you. Uh, why don't you call a few of your friends um, and we'll celebrate you being one of my apostles. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus quotes from the great 8th century prophet, 8th century BC prophet, Hosea in Hosea chapter 6. And Hosea's words were not understood then. They weren't understood in the first century, and we have trouble with them even today. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It reminds us of what Jesus says are the two great commandments, to love God, but also to love neighbor as self. And we see this played out in Jesus' life, not just in his teaching, but in his life, time and time again in the Gospels during his ministry. Uh, reaching out not just to the Jewish leaders, not just to the Jewish faithful, uh, but to the outcasts, even affirming uh, a man who was a Roman centurion, as we saw uh, earlier today. Jesus reminds them, and just as in Hosea's day, he's not saying, look, the sacrifices are not important. That was their worship. That was how they were obedient to God um, and, uh, and served the Lord. And, and so Hosea would never say that's not important. But what Hosea says in Hosea 6, what Amos says in Amos 4 and 5, and, and uh, what Micah says in Micah 6, and Isaiah in Isaiah 1, the psalmist in Psalm 50, all of those and more, Jeremiah in chapter 7, the great sermon on the church building, all of those and more say, look, if all you're doing is checking boxes and obeying commands, and then you're looking down your nose at everybody as if you're better than they are, and 
and their struggles aren't important to you, then you don't get it. And that's not acceptable to God. It's not acceptable to the God who loved us so much that he joined in our suffering. He didn't have to do that. But he sent his one and only son uh, to die for us so that we could have a way to be with him. Uh, he joined himself to our suffering and to our difficulties and to our humanity, to our pandemics, to everything about this world, everything about his this life that that God saw and didn't have to be a part of, but chose to be a part of. That's what Jesus does by calling Matthew, by going to his house, by um, having some degree of acceptance of his friends, far from accepting their lifestyle, far from accepting their dishonesty, uh, their thievery, their lying. Of course he didn't. But what he does do is he takes them where they are, and, and, and he goes so much farther than any of the religious leaders would do. And he says, look, if you're a doctor, you're going to minister to the sick. Uh, that's who you're called to help. And, and Jesus says, I, I, it, you know, if you don't need me, then I haven't come to call you. But if you recognize that, that you're not enough on your own, if you recognize that you need me, that you cannot be independent, and live forever, then you're exactly who I've come to help. Um, just as he does with Zacchaeus, that wee little man, and goes to his house uh, in Luke 19. Um, Jesus does that with Matthew here, and it's a fabulous story. And I, I can't imagine Matthew writing this without just bawling, without just crying, as he thinks of that story, as he thinks of his own life and salvation. And how that day, that moment, that uh, Messiah uh, changed his life uh, forever, um, just as he has done with us, just as he has done with us. Okay, let's keep going. Matthew 9, verse 14, Jesus questioned about fasting. They were all pretty slow then, so they asked him about fasting. <clears throat> See, you're not here, so I can't tell if you got that or not. But Okay, Matthew 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? John the Baptist, obviously. Later on, uh, I love the interaction between Jesus and John. And there's not much opportunity to see it, but we do see it. Um, and so John's disciples come and they ask him, How come we have to fast? The Pharisees fast. Your disciples don't. They're just out here partying. They're going to a tax collector's house. They're eating everything in sight. What's up? What's up? Jesus answered in verse 15, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Well, that's an odd place to put that story, Matthew, in my opinion, but that's where Matthew puts it, and I'm not going to argue with Matthew, certainly not going to argue with the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at this passage. A couple of things. First of all, about fasting. What about fasting, Bill? Are we required to fast today? Well, Scripture doesn't say you have to do that. Uh, but scripture does indicate that Jesus' disciples are going to do that in a passage like this. The bridegroom has been taken away. Jesus has ascended to heaven. 
So maybe we should consider doing that. Um, we just passed the season of Lent and uh, Easter, and many religions uh, practice that. For some, it's a mandatory fast. For the Jews, their only mandatory fast was on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But they fasted at other times as well. Jesus certainly did. His disciples would. Um, and so we saw in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus saying, when you fast, don't make a big deal about it. Don't do it to be seen by others. Don't do it so that people will say, man, boy, aren't you sacrificing? Um, but do it so that it's a service, an act of service to God. And I think fasting is important. I think it helps us to remind our bodies who's in charge and it's not our body. Um, you can fast from anything. You can fast from food. You can fast from drink. I, uh, some perhaps a strong soul out there can fast from coffee or good for you. Um, you can fast from something that is fine for you to participate in and enjoy, but but it's something that you will deliberately do without. Again, because you want to make sure that God is in control of your life and not some act that's perfectly fine on its own. There are a lot of things in this world, a lot of things about this physical body and uh, our carnal world that, that are great servants, but horrible masters. And I think fasting helps us with that. It, it helps us remind ourselves that the, the master is Jesus Christ, uh, not this thing that I enjoy, not this thing that I have every right to participate in. I can deliberately deny myself that. Uh, so that um, the Lord will be seen as on the throne in my life, particularly to me. It's a demonstration to me that I haven't gone overboard uh, on this. And I think that's the purpose of fasting. I think fasting also helps us when our stomach rumbles or when we want to play that game of hearts or watch that TV show or uh, whatever it is that we we say, you know, I'm going to say a prayer right now. I, as I think about that, it's going to be a reminder and a call to prayer. Um, lots of purposes around that. And Jesus acknowledges, you know, it's they're, they're going to have their time. They're going to have their opportunity. Um, but then he tells that story about the two parables about the, the uh, new cloth and old garment and the uh, uh, new wine and old wineskins. And, uh, you know, I, I think I think what Jesus is saying with those stories is both are important. You know, he's, he's looking at how to use these things so that you preserve both. You don't destroy the old garment by putting on a new uh, cloth. You, you try to match them up so that, so that you don't waste either. Um, with new wine, if you put it into old wineskins that have already stretched and then the wine begins to ferment and everything just is lost, and so Jesus says, you know, let's not do that. Let's preserve both. Let's use both. And so I, you know, as I'm planning worship services, uh, songs and scriptures and sermons, I'm, I'm going to try to keep that in mind. I'm going to try to have a balance. I'm going to try to be faithful to those who are old school uh, like me and and also those who are a little bit more contemporary and to try to do things that will help everyone to encounter god to have a, a an eye-to-eye face-to-face meeting with scripture uh that will get their attention and, uh, and an opportunity to worship i think that's what jesus uh desire is with um with those stories um okay then the rest of the chapter deals uh with a few other things 
And one of them is uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, uh, which starts at verse 18. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, um, the edge of his garment. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now, Jesus is on his way to heal somebody that's a daughter. And I, as a father of daughters, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, don't interrupt him. Let him get to my house. Let him heal my kid. But this incident happens on the way, and it's a reminder to me of how important sometimes those interruptions are. Um, and I'm bad about wanting to put the interruptions aside. I'm task-oriented. I'm a typical male. I, I don't want to start a new task until I'm finished with that one. Um, and, and in ministry, you don't get to make that call uh, a lot of times. Today, Jesus didn't get to make that call. And so this woman touches him and he could have just gone on. He could have just let her go, let her be healed, fine and dandy. But as Jesus tends to do, he stops and ministers to this woman more so than just her physical condition. Verse 22, Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. As we know from the other accounts, if they're talking about the same account again, then it seems like they are. Um, Jesus first says, wait a minute, who touched me? And the disciples are incredulous. They can't believe it. There's people all around you. Everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. One person touched me. Who touched me? And this woman knew that she had been found out and, and she uh, fessed up to it. And uh, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Um, such a great story. Uh, and then Jesus goes on and verse 23, when he entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put aside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. This great story of the healing uh, of the synagogue leader, Jairus, uh, his daughter. And this is one of only three accounts of Jesus raising uh, the dead. Can you think of the other two? I know you can think of one of them for sure, probably Lazarus in John 11. And I mentioned the other one, the third one, and that's found in Luke 7. Uh, this widow from the town of Nain, whose son, only son had died, and Jesus stops the funeral procession and heals her. Well, those are the only three incidents recorded. I don't know if he did more, uh, but those are the three uh, that we know of. And so we keep reading and, and, and we see that Jesus continues to heal and he continues uh, to help uh, finding this, uh, uh, this man in uh, verse 27, um, uh, that there were two blind men who were calling out to Jesus to help him uh, and to heal them. And Jesus asked, do you believe? And they say, yes. And he says, touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. But then he says something really weird in Matthew 9, verse 30. He says it a few times in the Gospels. See that no one knows about this. But of course, they go out and spread the word about it. Anyway, I mean, how can they not? They're overjoyed. Um, and then the same thing, a demon-possessed man Jesus encounters. 
who had caused the man not to be able to speak and um and and jesus heals him and people are amazed They're, they they can't believe that and it's nothing like those who would purport to do miracles today i mean this was special this was incredible this was like the days of elisha uh, this is like the days of the new testament church after acts chapter 2. Um, and then the pharisees say in verse 34 weirdly enough it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons and jesus will talk more about that and matthew will record it in just a few chapters uh, and and he also addresses this idea of why jesus tells uh, people not to say anything about him yet. And it could be that he does that because it's not his time, it's not his hour, as he says in John, and he knows that that's gonna get him into trouble and it's gonna speed this thing up. But Matthew also brings up, will bring up later, as we'll see, uh, the Old Testament scripture in Isaiah that talks about how Jesus is not, the Son of God is, the, the Messiah is not gonna make a big deal about himself. Uh, and we read that in a couple of passages in Isaiah and other places. And, and so that helps us to understand why Jesus would, would say such a thing. And then Matthew chapter 9 ends with these words, beginning in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Begins with his compassion. When we help people, it's, it begins there too. Then he said to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, just as he does in John chapter four, uh, after interacting with the Samaritan woman, um, he says, look, there, there's, there's opportunity everywhere. Um, to do good things for the Lord. And we see that today in the midst of, of uh, this novel coronavirus epidemic, pandemic. We see great people doing all kinds of acts of service to help and to serve, making masks, uh, encouraging other people by uh, clapping for healthcare workers, uh, sacrificing themselves so that others who uh, don't have as much can have what they need. Um, so much, uh, so many good things out there. Jesus tells us to open our eyes, but to open our eyes with compassion, see the needs around us and to be willing to act on them. Well, we'll stop there for today. Uh, we'll try to get through chapters 10, 11, and 12 next week. We'll see how far we can get. Chapter 10 is a very challenging chapter. I hope you read that chapter and, and be reminded of the cost of discipleship. Be reminded that when Jesus calls us to be his disciple and to follow him, um, it doesn't mean that every prayer is going to be answered with yes. It doesn't mean that every day is going to be filled with joy and happiness as the way the world measures it. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have to give some things up. Um, it even doesn't mean that we won't ever suffer. None of those things is true. And we'll see that in a very real and hard, hard way in Matthew chapter 10. Um, and then uh, in chapter 11, we'll get to that wonderful passage um, and beginning in verse 28, where Jesus offers a great invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I pray that for you today. Um, I pray that whatever you're going through, whatever your loved ones are going through today, that you will come to Jesus because he alone can give you rest. Um, and he will. He will. God bless you. I look forward to seeing you again on Thursday at 4 p.m. Central Daylight Time. Uh, for Matthew 10 through maybe 12.
God bless, and I'll see you soon.